As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and today we're going to be reviewing this week's tranche of Champions League games. I'm still not tired of saying that word. Joining me to do so is a man who puts it on target every single time, unlike Usman Dembele. It's Taylor Rockwell! Hello! I I appreciate that one. It's a positive introduction. Thank you for that, Ryan. Still don't know what a tranche is. I think uh, listener question asker from yesterday, Ira Jersey, has offered to explain it. Maybe I will take him up on that, and then I will finally be able to get your references. (laughs) Joining Taylor and I is a man who's progressing to the quarterfinals of awesome analysis, Joe Lowry. (laughs) That might be my favorite one yet. It's the most flattering to me. Ryan, uh, thank you for that. And it's great to be here. All the goats always make it through to the quarterfinals. That's something that we've learned from this week, right? (laughs) So uh, that's why I wanted to give that one to you, Joe. Before we start today's proceedings, gents, I have have some grievances to air. Uh Uh-oh. Please. Yeah. The listener question situation. All right. The the listener question show that went out this week with with, uh, Mr. Snaves and Mr. Rockwell. Very good indeed. But Joe... I don't know if you listened to it, but you and I were slighted on this episode. Go Taylor on. Taylor Rockwell, he held us as liars. He said that b- b- both, neither of us have wasted our time watching or reading Harry Potter, but Taylor accused us of lying that we had actually seen it. <laughs> oh, I did hear that. Have, he thinks we have the time and inclination to watch a children's movie about wizards and that we'd be too embarrassed to admit it. I think we're both nerdy enough to have admitted <laughs> that thing if we'd have done it. But uh, frankly, uh, uh, I-, I felt I felt hurt by that, that Taylor Taylor didn't think we were telling truthies. And I felt I was telling truthies. Are you telling truthies, Joe? I was telling truthies. I'd never thought to express it in that way before. But yeah, Taylor, <laughs> I, think, I think I think Ryan and I now have... A joint grievance against you. We can work all this out at some point, I hope. We're going to need maybe some some group counseling here. But yeah, Ryan, thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate that. All right. I'll do it right now. I'm going to come to my own defense here. That's what's going to happen now. Because here's what... Neither of you has ever verbalized a particular dislike for the Harry Potter franchise. Is that fair to say? Neither of you has any reason. You're not anti-witch. You're not uh, anti-wizard. Is that fair to say? (laughs) I'm right in the middle. Fair. All right. 
Ryan? Yeah, yeah, fair. All right. So to me, Harry Potter is so ubiquitous. Like it's on various cable channels at various points. Ryan, you have two daughters. Uh, the, the books are everywhere. The audiobooks are everywhere. Where that came from was sort of like, I feel like you have to have seen at least a little bit of one of the movies. Are you claiming that you have never read or heard one of the books or never seen any of the movies? The books are in my home. My wife is fanatical. We have been to Harry ah. Potter's wizarding expensive See. world of nonsense See. Uh, in Florida. <laughs> but um, I, I've still avoided at all costs seeing the movies or reading the books. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you giving it its proper title, <laughs> which is outstanding. <laughs> and one of my biggest fears uh, now that I'm a dad is how many things I'm going to have to go to and attend that I'm like, oh, great. It costs that much? Awesome. But I have yeah. to do it. Great. Great, great, great. Daddy, Joe. can I have a butter beer? No, it's called beer. It's nine dollars, and they won't tell me what it is. So no. <laughs> did, did you get the butter beer though? Because I do kind of want to know what butter beer tastes like. I had six butter beers. I was hammered. That a boy. <laughs> and Joe, what about you? <laughs> have you ever seen or or heard or read any Harry Potter? I don't think outside of maybe you know flipping around on TV mm-hmm. back when kind of TV mm-hmm. was still more of a thing than it is now. And seeing a movie and being, oh, what's that? And then looking at the guide and it's saying, oh, it's it's Harry Potter 4 or whatever. And then continuing on. <laughs> I think that's about my – that's all my experience with Harry Potter. So I'm glad that you found someone in Adam Snavely who could properly address that question from Ira. And you two could go back and forth and have yourselves a good time. I enjoyed that I didn't even – I think I assumed both of you would because I think the question was meant for me and uh, Joe uh, from Ira. And so I just kind of assumed that Joe would would have the Harry Potter background. He did not. So then I was like, oh, well, Ryan, obviously, well, we'll just answer that one. And when both of you said that you had no Harry Potter background, I was confused, especially because listeners can't see this because we're – recording uh, just the audio, but we have the video in front of us. Uh, Ryan and Joe both have the Harry Potter sorting hat on. I don't know how both of you are wearing it, uh, <laughs> but like, I see a lot of Harry Potter decorations in the background, so I, I just feel like this is all a little bit disingenuous. Oh, the man in the store told me this was all the cool kids were wearing. It's jaunty. <laughs> I didn't know it was a sorting hat. Um, I must admit, I, when I put on the listener questions episode yesterday, my thumb was hovering over the plus 30 seconds button for a while thinking, do I want to subject myself to this? This sounds like it could go long. We're picking several I'm going to guess here. you were not alone in that. I'm glad I stuck with it, though, because it was very entertaining, even if I don't quite get the references to the positions and whatnot. But I had to call you up on something. You you, you were compiling uh, US-based teams for the men and women. Mm-hmm. Taylor, I think you picked, uh, you picked Eunice Musa in yours. I think there was an error there. <laughs> Hey, we, we talked about it. I there may it may well be the reason why he ends up not playing for the United States because he's like I, I don't I don't want these people covering me. <laughs> uh, but there's always a chance that he listens to it, and, and maybe he's a huge Harry Potter fan. We know Weston McKinney is. I think that's where the question came from, the or the origin of it. Uh, so there's always a chance that maybe he listens and thinks like, if I'm not being included, why am I even? I'm just going to go play where Harry Potter's from instead of uh, in the United States. He's from See, Italy? it's it's, it's, it's all it's all makes sense, oh, right? Spain? It all makes sense. <laughs> Oh, I get it. We're talking about England now. Okay, I'm following the conversation <laughs> completely. I do have, um, I do have uh, one other thing I have to bring up about Snaves. I believe you f- refer to him as the Baron Lord Snavington. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. My knowledge of British nobility and titles is limited, but I think a Baron is a Lord, or at least you call a Baron a Lord. So you've got a tautological nickname for him there. How do you feel? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like it's uh, representative of his importance to the British Empire and that he has double esteem. And then I do feel bad, though, because I didn't give him his full name. Joe and Adam talked about this previously. Uh, for those who don't know, his full name is Adamuel. So it's it's Lord uh, <laughs> Lord 
Oh, but Baron Lord Adamuel Snavington is his full name. Took me a minute there. I got it out eventually. Wonderful. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Just go on and talk about soccer, shall we? From both of you. I think we've exhausted this banter. Let's talk about some soccer. We had Champions League games this week, which we're going to talk about. We got Juventus who took on Porto, uh, Dortmund took on Sevilla, and on Wednesday, some slightly less entertaining but no less worthy of talking about matches: Liverpool against Leipzig and PSG against Barcelona. The headline, kind of coming into or coming out of this uh, tranche of games, is that both the goats are out on the same uh, on the same match day, if you will, uh, Messi and Ronaldo on consecutive nights, if you will. And the new goats, both through Haaland and Mbappe, first time since 2004-05 without either Messi or Ronaldo in the quarterfinals. Taylor, end of an era or just something that we just say to make this sound more interesting than it is? I mean, it's a representation of the era. If you go with Jamie Carragher, who was using all of that to argue that Liverpool will inevitably win the Champions League. That was his post-match analysis insight. It is strange to have both of them out. I think it's stranger for me to have Messi no longer involved, just because in watching these two games and thinking about this, because I watched them uh, live and then after the fact, I've rewatched decent chunks of all these games. Thinking about like Messi does have that, as we saw with his goal, that ability to just out of nowhere, he can create something and you can never really chalk him off because at a certain point he can slalom through and score a goal. Ronaldo, I don't know if he, in my mind at least, like has that as much of that ability anymore. I think he can still obviously score goals and, and create. I'm not trying to disparage him, but I just think Messi has that other element of like, you can never take your eye off him for a second because otherwise he's going to create something. So it is sort of strange to not have him involved anymore and I did continuously think especially when he gets that penalty and which is ends up being saved it felt like oh here we go this is the comeback they're going to go in halftime two to one they're going to come out PSG are going to be nervous and we're going to get some sort of turnaround and we didn't so here we are and now we have the youngsters uh paving the way and scoring goals and talking trash and speaking of youngsters Joe you're a little younger than old man Rockwell and I and I was thinking you know uh, Messi and Ronaldo have been on the scene for what 15 16 years that's a large proportion of your soccer watching time that they've been part of the furniture, right? Yeah, it's weird to think of soccer without Messi and Ronaldo for me. And I think that goes for a lot of other younger folks as well who kind of have have seen them be attached to the game for so long. But to be honest, it's kind of, I, I don't know, I, this isn't meant to be harsh to anyone in particular, but it's kind of a welcome change. I don't think that one era is completely over now because of two games that happened midweek in 2021, right? That That is not going to ultimately define the end of this era. It is a good landmark to show the changing of the tide in some senses, but I, I think I'm looking forward to getting a look at other players at a, at a higher level of spotlight. That's not really a term, but I'm making it one. I'm looking forward to seeing Mbappe and Erling Haaland continue to make their mark on soccer because they are both tremendously entertaining players to watch, just like Messi and Ronaldo have been for so long. We are seeing more incredibly talented and incredibly fun superstars come to the top, and that excites me. You know what excites me? Hearing what you've got to say, Joe, as the dictator of Porto about the first match we're going to be talking about. <laughs> Juventus against Porto. This one finished 3-2 on the night to the old lady. 4-4 on aggregate with Porto going through on away goals. I've got thoughts on away goals. We can uh, handle those in a second. But for the first uh, first up, Joe, 10-man Porto getting this job done against Juventus. Can we start with where uh, Conceição went right with this team? I think he, I think he went right by having a roughly similar game plan to the first leg. So they come out of the first leg 
up 2-1. to one. They give up that away goal towards the end of the game, and that is a tough pill to swallow for Porto. But Conceso comes into this game and, and has a roughly similar idea of how he wants this team to play. He's playing to their strength. So when you look at the lineup for Porto on paper or on your computer, whatever, it's a 4-4-2. But in, in real life, in this game, it actually wasn't. So they took that 4-4-2, and they had one of the strikers, Marega, drop down into midfield. Then they had the, the two wide midfielders, the left mid and the right mid, drop into the back line for large stretches of this game. Not unlike Barcelona did against PSG back in their first leg a few weeks ago. So that 4-4-2 from Conceição turned into a 6-3-1. And it's a weird shape, and it did some weird things, and it allowed Juve to do some good things, or, or Juve was smart enough and, and skilled enough to take advantage of some weaknesses in that shape. But the idea of the 6-3-1 that Porto played was to congest space and to make life miserable for for Juventus and to congest midfield to have Marega providing an extra number there so they have three there instead of two and then to have extra width because Juve like to have Quadrado pushing up on one side and like to have width on the other side it came in the form in the form of Chiesa in this game they like to stretch you wide and Porto knew that coming into this Conceição knew that and said no we're going to counteract that with our our six-man back line so we can cover width and we can actually have numbers in midfield and I think by and large until Porto go down a man, that shape works out fairly well. Yeah, I would, and then I would, I would like uh, to go off of what Joe said. Then even when they do go down a man, I think like the commentators kept saying they were now in like a six-two-one. What what I saw was maybe sometimes they were that, but a lot of times it seemed to me that they were still in a five-three-one because they wanted that three-man midfield to be able to still apply pressure a little bit higher up the field. And I would argue that that's where some of those changes end up needing to be made. Some of the substitutions happen because that midfield three does get a bit more tired and then they don't close down as much. And I think that's kind of how you, they are able to get better service and get some of those goals back. But I think to Joe's point, the defensive approach combined with still having that like midfield three and the presence there confounded Juve a little bit. And I think also, sort of focused in on some of the problems that Juve had and some of the lineup or the formation issues that their uh, approach suggested. Some very impressive performances from Porto, Gent, but perhaps the um, the star of the back five or the back six, if you will, was Pepe, uh, 38-year-old Pepe, who had a brilliant game doing overhead clearances in the dying minutes and, and just generally just being an absolute force and uh, being uh, terrorising Juventus at every available opportunity. Joe, um, at what point does Pepe get a statue in Porto up erected next to your statue? Right, well, it's going to be shorter, right? It's going to be shorter and smaller. <laughs> But uh, we will work on on that process ASAP. Uh, Pepe will be getting a statue. It will be cool, but again, not as cool as mine. Very good, very good. Uh, Taylor, can we talk about Juventus's formation as well? Can you explain sure. to me what they were doing? Because I was trying to follow this. It, it, it was ostensibly a 4-4-2, but not because sometimes it was a 3-6-something. Tell, tell me what was going on here. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it, it uh, I've seen it listed as a, a 4-4-2 pretty consistently. For me, it was that at times, especially defensively. But when they were attacking, when they were trying to be proactive uh, or maybe apply pressure high up the field, it felt more like a, a 4-3-3 with Chiesa joining the attack and being one of that like kind of frontline three and then Ramsey moving very central. And you'd have a kind of congested three in the midfield. And that I, I think ideally gave you with that wide with overlapping runs from the fullbacks if you wanted that. I think... The problem uh, for Juve, in my mind at least, was that Ronaldo, given free license to Rome, can pop up wherever he wants, but isn't then going to do the defensive job. So there's times when he drifts out to the left, then Chiesa goes central, and if Juve lose the ball, 
Ronaldo's not tra- tracking back, so Chiesa has to. And if you are going to defend in that four four two shape, which I think they did, it necessitates having somebody who can then fill in out wide. And oftentimes, I think I sent you both this clip, it requires Chiesa to sprint 45 yards to get back into position. And yeah. sometimes even then, if the ball's on that side, he's just kind of running from point to point, trying to put out fires and doesn't end up doing that. I would argue even the penalty comes about because Porto counterattack, they play it out wide to Correa, who has no one near him because Chiesa is committed forward and Ronaldo hasn't tracked, tracked back. Now you have to have people slide out and people cover. And then you end up having a bit of a chaotic moment. And that's where I think that penalty ends up being conceded because of some of the overloads, I would say self-inflicted overloads at that, uh, that Juve presented. So it was a yeah, curious formation, as you say there, Taylor, with, um, and Quadrado had a very good night playing sort of that right wing back position and pushing up when, when Ramsey went central, as you say. And it seemed like a lot of this was about Quadrado putting really good balls into the box. And they did that many a time, um, and, and Chiesa yeah. becoming sort of a really a, a big game player for Juve in this circumstance. <laughs> yeah. I mean that 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 finish off the Ronaldo like layoff is I just Beautiful. enjoy how I'm sure he was aiming for that, but whenever you put it like that high and that close to the far post, there's an there is a little vague feeling of luck, but the power and sort of like just the force behind that shot, it's so pretty. And yeah, then a great header from him. But you're right to point out Quadrado, and I think that's to go back to the my, my earlier point about Porto, I think that's where that midfield three was so important, that as their legs got a, a bit more tired, as they're playing a man down for much longer, they're not able to close down as much, and I think it gives Quadrado just that extra second, that extra half second to be able to really spot the the run he wants, to spot the space he wants to play that ball into, as opposed to, I've got somebody running at me, I've just got to put this in the box and hope it works out. Yeah, didn't quite work out for Juventus, of course, so on the night. Um they, it felt like they could have got that extra goal they needed, though, didn't it, Taylor, at some points? I was kind of shocked they didn't. Uh, because it, as soon as Chiesa gets that second one, it feels for all the world like, here we go, Porto, man down. They've had to change their approach. They're getting tired. Juve have all the confidence. And I, and I think it's a credit to Conte Sao that he makes some of those substitutions that we've talked about. And then I think it's just the the fight that they show, maybe a little bit of cynical fight as well. Uh, but I think it's the ability to close down and fight for every single ball that's coming in that not nullifies necessarily, but I think there's another world in which they don't respond to that second goal quite as swiftly, quite as directly. And then you may get another one and maybe another one. And I think that Porto are able to kind of stop the bleeding despite being a man down, figure some things out, limit Juve's chances. I tweeted that, uh, that I had to go pick up my daughter. So I was hoping it ended in regulation and I ended up going to get her. Uh, I came back for the, like the last couple minutes of, uh, uh, extra time or yes, extra time. No. I don't know. What, what do you all call, call it, Ryan? Because we would call it overtime. Extra time. Extra time. Extra time. Yeah. Then added time is injury time. There we go. Okay. Uh, and I really did expect it to be Juve like 3-1 up or 4-1 up at that point. And that it wasn't, I think, speaks volumes of that defensive solidity of Porto. And I think to your earlier point of Pepe sort of reminding everybody that he will break them physically if they don't do uh, like the defensive work that he requires them to do. Yeah, Joe as well, definitely. obviously. The, the dictator right. has influence there too. Well, I think the dictator, certainly his shadow was cast over Andrea Pirlo in this <laughs> game. Um, and speaking of Andrea Pirlo, uh, Joe, is, is this a big indictment of him? If you look at Juventus' season, you know, not necessarily in the position they want to be in Serie A and going out at uh, uh, this stage of the Champions League. It's, uh, this is the third straight season since signing Cristiano Ronaldo when Juventus have failed to progress past the quarterfinal stage. And bear in mind, they've been in the final itself uh, twice in four years before he joined how damning is this for Pirlo do you think Joe 
man, I don't know. I maybe I'm more lenient than you guys because <laughs> I remember right. we talked about Frank Lampard and Thomas Tuchel, and you guys are are all over the whole Frank Lampard wasn't good enough, and you know whatever, right? That that's probably true. But are, you, are you suggesting that we're, that like Frank Lampard? Thomas Tuchel is a better coach difference? than Frank Lampard. Okay. <laughs> Thomas Tuchel is a much better coach than Frank Lampard. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it's hard. It's hard to zoom in so far into one result where Juve, very, we all agree, very clearly were, were the better team for stretches of this game and, and almost won this game. And if, if that's the case, if that shot from Juan Cuadrado goes in and doesn't hit off the, the top bar, we're having a totally different conversation right now. Soccer is so, it's so difficult to discuss sometimes because fractions can change fractions of an inch can change the entire narrative and that makes it difficult how much should we swing to one side if the ball bounces out versus the other side if the ball bounces in right these are the questions sometimes that i think about i think by and large andrea pirlo has done a fairly good job that's not a popular take with you know in in regards to a season with juve so far but the soccer he has them playing yes their formations are confusing at times but i think that's by design he has them doing some pretty interesting tactical rotations they're breaking teams down i thought their improvement in possession from this from the first leg to this leg was very much noticeable ronaldo was getting in some better spots aaron ramsey i thought was a great addition over weston mckinney in the starting 11 i thought pirlo made good changes from leg one to leg two the mistakes they had in leg one killed them ultimately i think and and they're so close to coming back in this game. I think Pirlo still has a fairly bright future ahead of him as a manager. And if he doesn't, either way, I think it's still too early to tell. I think uh, to uh, to jump in, I I think Joe is pretty astute there, and I think that's like that is a hard thing to do, especially in like the industry that we're in. It's always easier to criticize and to say this this person's not good enough; they're not getting it right. Look what Sari did with even less resources or even fewer resources. Like, why isn't Pirlo getting this team to the Champions League final? Why aren't they winning Serie A? And I think that's an easy argument to make. I saw a bunch of people say like Pirlo and Gattuso prove that you shouldn't have like this generation managing. I, I don't think they prove that at all. And I think to conclude that is to, in my mind, show that you have already concluded that, that you've already decided Pirlo isn't a good manager. And then you're building your narrative in response to that. And I think to Joe's point, and Pirlo has himself said this after the game is they're building towards the long term and that that's they're trying to sort of figure things out having had sorry with an entirely different philosophy than the managers who came before him what do you do with the squad as it is who do you move on who do you keep how do you get people buying in what system fits the best with what Pirlo's philosophy is going to be and so it's easy to say like oh my gosh look at the talent there how do they not win and and I and I think there are questions to be asked about that for sure but simultaneously I think he does make some some good choices in this game I think he does the best he can I think I do sort of buy into the idea a little bit that Ronaldo at this point is a bit more of a problem than a solution for them and I think that's probably a thing that he's trying to navigate and so it's tough to look at this in the vacuum and say like, oh, they lost. They should have won. We all thought they were going to win. They didn't. So it's bad. It's not great, certainly, that they didn't advance. And I'm sure their their president is not thrilled at the way they went out and to whom they went out. But I think uh, I don't think he gets sacked for this. Maybe if they don't win Serie A or they fall off completely and there's infighting, then we do see him get sacked. But for the most part, I think 
we saw some positives uh, from Juve, more so than I thought we would see, at least from Andrea Pirlo's perspective. Yeah, maybe we'll have to see what Allegri's doing in the summer, right? But uh, uh, something... Um... <laughs> Continuing to do nothing, I think. <laughs> Evidently. Um, something that, I don't know, forgive me if this is boring chat, but away goals, the away goals rule. I, have, mm. I don't like it. I've never liked it. I haven't liked it since 1997 when Wimbledon, my team, were eliminated from the League Cup semi-finals, denied a day at Wembley uh, because of the away goals rule. Leicester City, we were playing in the semi-finals. Finals. It was a nil-nil first leg and one-one second leg. I find that very unfair that my team were denied that on that rule. And 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 in the modern age where you know travel away isn't necessarily a big disadvantage unless um, away fans are setting off fireworks or fire alarms in your team hotel. We can get to that later. But um, this is a Champions League where some of the teams aren't playing their home matches at home, and we've got mm. an example of that in this uh, match day as well. So to have. You know, the away goals rule is one thing, but also extra time with the away goals rule. Yeah. It seems bizarre to me that the home team, Juventus had another 30 minutes to score a home goal. And Porto here had another 30 minutes to get an away goal, which has more value. So they're getting more time to get a goal with more value. This I find troubling. Anyone care to wade in on that? So I would say the devil's the devil's advocate argument to get it up front that I have heard before is basically that like you both had the opportunity to get the away goals in those 90 minutes. And now because it's deadlocked, the team that like I like the away team in the second leg now has the advantage, but it's an earned advantage. I'm not even doing a good job of playing devil's advocate because I agree with you, Ryan. I think it should be scrapped. And I think that is a thing that Major League Soccer has done. It led to some confusion a couple seasons ago. I think it was a Seattle game when they thought they'd won, but they were and actually Portland. having to go to penalties. Sebastian Portland, Blanco. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I, and I like that because I agree with you that if you've both had the opportunity to score goals in the 90 minutes away, it doesn't make sense for then in those final 30 minutes for them to still count more. Like, unless they want to then play another extra time, like, and go back to the other host country, and then we can balance it out a little bit. I think that's probably the way to do it, if you want to do it that way. Yeah. Maybe we should, we should just settle this up. They used to in the olden times and toss a coin at the end of 90 minutes if it's a draw. Did they do that in the English game? I feel like they might have done that in the English game at some point, maybe. Probably, but they probably had to make it more dramatic and a slow-mo, slow-mo coin flip. I also like, I'm with you on away goals that I understand why you have to have it, especially when it's a packed stadium and it's a really hostile environment and you still manage to get a result. And I said this on Twitter, it would be a very negative thing probably in the end, but like if you can, like Sevilla, for example, they had, they had to score a, a large number of goals to counteract the fact that they what lost three, two at home. But I do feel like if you're winning like one nil on the road and you keep a clean sheet, you're not really rewarded for keeping that clean sheet necessarily. And I feel like you kind of should be like, there should be a bonus for keeping a clean sheet on the road. It invites defensiveness, but I guess it also invites the other team to be more attacking. I do think Ryan, I guess fundamentally there are opportunities for revision here, or maybe to for the folks in charge to look at this and think we could just change the rules just a tiny bit, just to make things a bit more fair, equitable long-term. Careful talking about revision. Uh, it might remind the, the dictator of Porto about things like revisionist history. He doesn't like to <laughs> hear terms like that, by the way. Um, all right. Well, we're going to talk about Dortmund against Sevilla right after these short messages. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. 
Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. Let's turn our attentions to the Westfalenstadion Dortmund against Sevilla. This one finished an Archbishop Desmond 2-2 on the evening with Dortmund going through 5-4 on aggregate, oh having God. had a 3-2 lead. In, what, you didn't like the 2-2 one there? You didn't like that? Oh, no, it's, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. That's the type of fun that you just have to kind of quietly appreciate. It just It doesn't play well on air when I'm just like... Uh, quietly applauding and nodding but yes well done, is, Ryan. Is, well done. Is, the, is the archbishop desmond tutu a popular character in, in the u.s would people know who he was i mean popular is a word i would say uh, i would say known yeah okay because like, at home you'd say oh what was the score i was a desmond like that was that's a fairly a fairly well-known term anyway my <laughs> number one desmond will always be desmond from uh lost I never watched Lost because I never watch anything, apparently. Harry did Potter, you not? Or, or did you maybe see parts of it and you just don't want to own up to it? We're back to this. We're back to this. <laughs> you didn't miss anything with Lost. You're fine. Uh, my wife talks about someone or in her sleep. She says the word Sawyer quite a lot. I don't know what to uh, make of that. Anyway. Um... We, we all do. <laughs> Joe, time... how's this working out for you, buddy? Oh, it's going great, guys. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. Let's uh, let's continue with this game. Borussia Dortmund getting into the Champions League quarterfinals for the first time in four years. A rather entertaining game this was indeed, having nine goals across the two uh, games, of course. Uh, Joe, if you don't mind, let's start with Sevilla. I, I think I named them Poophousery FC in a previous episode, and they did nothing to dispel that title, in my opinion. Uh, lots of play acting here. It seemed Acuna was um, really... Hankering for a red card. Uh, Diego Carlos getting his elbows uh, nice and sharp as well. It seemed like Sevilla bringing out all their classic weapons against Dortmund here. It's funny because I think Sevilla are one of the few teams that I've seen this year that can balance that poophousery-ness-ticity that they have, but also (laughs) play some really nice soccer under Lopetegui. I think the, the way that they approach this game and the way that I guess Dortmund kind of forced them to approach this game... Sevilla had a lot of the ball. Dortmund, having that goal advantage coming into this one, weren't too bothered about controlling possession on their own. And Terzic said, okay, here you go. You can have the ball. And Sevilla were fine with that. They attacked in kind of a fluid 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1. They had all 10 outfield players in Dortmund's half a lot from the start of the game. They were mm. going for it. And it made this game pretty entertaining, I thought. I mean, are you guys with me on that? I thought this was maybe actually the best game of the four that, that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, it's it's close with Juve Porto. I think just the way that one ended, I might give it the edge. True, but true. I'm with you because I think Sevilla did a lot of stuff very intelligently here. I think they set up to try to negate what Dortmund's main threats were going to be. I think that's why, uh, to Joe's point, that sort of 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1 attacking approach, that back four is very tight, very consistently, because it seems like they are okay with attacks coming down the channels, less so with Erling Haaland uh, being involved in anything. And it, this game did feel so much to me, Ryan, to your like to your initial question, like a bit of a passing of the torch, because the the attention that was given to Haaland, even when... 
Sevilla are attacking and they have the ball and maybe Emrejan gets it. And on the rare occasion that he actually clears it upfield as opposed to straight to a Sevilla player or directly out of bounds, like any time there was a 50-50, you could just see Sevilla collapsing on Holland because they did not back themselves to, to fight him off the ball or to win it directly. And I think that was a correct assumption. So I think to some extent, keeping those numbers central and giving themselves theoretically a numerical advantage to deal with Holland, I think was very, very smart. And then to commit the numbers forward to really create a lot of chaos and cause Dortmund a lot of discomfort was really smart and really effective. It just ends up being that that one lapse, that one sort of like self-inflicted collision that leads to the turnover, that leads to the goal. That's kind of all it takes. And then once you're 1-0 down, which makes you, what, 4-2 down on aggregate, you got to kind of go for it. You got to extend yourself and then you leave yourself vulnerable to additional attacks. And they were indeed vulnerable to additional attacks. No fewer uh, than the, the many from Haaland who became the highest scoring Norwegian in the competition, overtaking Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. 20 goals in 14 appearances in this competition. That's not bad. Four goals in this tie alone. Um, I, but- I will say about that statistic, I was annoyed. You can see it in my notes, like how many times I had to cross it out. Because first I had, when he scores his first one, 19 goals in 14 games. Like That's <laughs> impressive. Then it was 20. Then that goal was chalked off. So then it went back to back to 19 then he gets the penalty and i was like oh it's gonna be 20 again and then he misses it and then he scores it and now ev- eventually it's 20 but a lot of crossing out in my notes i didn't oh love my it gosh and for, for the ocd fans out there taylor's notes are very neat and tidy They're so beautiful. crossing out that Holy must have cow. infuriated you that there must you have go. been very there rough you for you i'm so sorry that happened um, but i think harlan's <laughs> also got the record for nearly killing his teammates with celebrations he almost <laughs> did it again here marco royce not only did he do like the the terrifying approach to him he had his hands all around his neck he had him in the stranglehold. It was crazy. Oh, man. It's just, I also enjoy that Marco Royce sort of just goes limp. Like, I know it's coming. <laughs> fine. Just lift me in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I, it's... A- I loved Holland so much in this game. I really did. I loved the trash talk after he does score the penalty. I love and then being like, what? Why are you all mad at me when the entire Sevilla team tries to fight him? I thought that was tremendous. Uh, yeah, he is definitely okay with being a villain if he needs to be. I wonder if Terzic says to the rest of the team, look, if he comes after you, just play limp, play dead. He'll, <laughs> he'll lose interest. Or you've got to hit him on the nose. It's like, a, you know, treat him like a bear. If you, if you ever Make yourself as big as you can and see if it dissuades him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he wasn't the only star for Dor- Dortmund here. I thought Dahoud had a pretty good game. I think Jude Bellingham, this is maybe the best game for Dortmund I've seen him play. And uh, 17 years old, very, very impressive from, from midfield. I thought, uh, Joe, that the, the Dortmund midfield were pretty strong here. I agree. The way that they had to defend as a, as a unit against Sevilla's attack. Sevilla, again, had so much of the ball in this game. Dortmund were back defending in a 4-5-1 and Dahoud and Bellingham were the two kind of number eights in front of Dortmund's number six. And so they had not only a lot of ground to cover, both vertically and horizontally, but when Dortmund would win the ball back, Sevilla counterpressed and, and Dortmund had to play out of that pressure. And so I noticed a lot of quick combination play, starting with Dahoud or starting with Bellingham on their sides, combining with the fullbacks or combining with each other, whatever the situation was, getting out of that pressure and then playing an outlet ball to Erling Holland and letting him do the rest, or letting him, Hazard, and uh, Marco Royce do the rest at that point in the attack. But those attacks don't really come about without quality play and quality passing and awareness from Dahoud and Bellingham. All right, gents, it's about that time. We've got to talk about the incident, or mm-hmm. the incidents, okay? Should we go? Should we get to it? Let's we, do we, it. We couldn't yeah, go to it. I'm, I'm glad Graham Musman isn't here, because it involved uh, VAR, and uh, he, I'm not allowed to mention that acronym around him anymore. But we had this situation where... 
essentially Erling Haaland scored a pretty decent solo effort from an acute yeah. angle and it was yeah. ruled out. So, so Haaland scores this goal. VAR calls a penalty instead because Haaland was fouled in the box in a previous passage of play. I think it was Kunde, if I remember correctly, who, yep. who committed that foul. So then Bono, the goalkeeper, saves the penalty, saves the rebound, uh, gloats in uh, in Haaland's face uh, to, 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 a, to a rather large extent. Then Sevilla bring the ball down the other end and they try to counter before VAR determines that Bono's feet were off the line. When the penalty was taken, they retake the penalty, which Haaland converts and exchanges with Bono the uh, the gloating where, uh, you know, Bono celebrated too early. He was stuck in a moment he couldn't get out of. Haaland had the edge, blah, blah, blah. I got those ones out there. But my, my issue with this passage of play, <laughs> gents, is that a penalty was given for denying a goal-scoring opportunity when a goal was scored. That doesn't make sense to me, Taylor. I mean, two wrongs don't make a penalty, I guess, or don't make a goal. Like, if you, I don't know, if you rob somebody because you yourself were robbed, that like you're not justified in that action. And I think that's the best analogy I can go with here because... As my understand, my understanding is that when Holland goes in for that fifty challenge, knocks uh, Fernando off the ball, not Fernandinho. I always have to make sure I get that right. Um, mm-hmm. The goal is given. I think the replay shows that maybe it's to like the back of the shoulder as opposed to the side of the shoulder, which means it's in the back, which means it's barging into the back, which means it's going to be a foul. So I think there they're giving the foul. They're saying, okay, so the goal is not going to stand. But then there's this past incident that we have to look at, and in that incident. The jersey's pulled back. It it limits Holland's ability to get in behind and get in on on the ball. So then we are going to give a penalty for that one. So it's it's weird that it happens. I think it would have been almost more useful to be able to understood to understand what happened if like the goal is chalked off. Then they resume play. Then they look at the other sequence because it feels like the two are connected when in reality they're really not. It's just the timeline is so condensed that he ends up looking at two replays in the same sequence, which I don't think is necessarily what they're going for but i guess what was required here so that's the best way i can understand it i don't know if that helps ryan i've been sitting here working on my scottish accent and ultimately i think the best thing for all of us and for the listeners is that i don't actually try but i just want to get out there i'm team uh, team graham i'm team graham uh Mm -hmm. my my biggest thought to do with this before i turn (laughs) it back to you ryan is that erling holland is really good at soccer thank you that's it I mean, that's compelling. And once again, the king of analysis, uh, Joe Lowry, uh, win, wins the day with that one. Um, but but the, I think there's a VAR issue here because I've seen some people comment how that incident wasn't clear an ov- an obvi- a clear and obvious error necessarily. And it wasn't missed because the referee's looking at it. So uh, <laughs> whether, it's, uh, whether it was an appropriate use of VAR as well is another issue. But I find it a little bit bizarre when the net result is... Um, a goal was ruled out to give yeah. a penalty. So, and that- Ryan, like I think this is the thing that you've talked about before on different episodes. Like, I, I think sometimes the the frustration with VAR is a little bit overblown. I think sometimes yelling at VAR about the lines, where it's like that's the offside rule. If you're using it to enforce offside, like that's what it's going to be. I think that's a little bit unfair. Where I do sort of agree with you is that I think anytime you start to cut down clips and clips and clips and clips, and you see just abbreviated versions of it. 
it starts to be harder to interpret. And I would say the the Taremi penalty in the Porto game is a good example of that. Of like when I watched those replays over and over again, I went along with the commentator's point of like, oh yeah, he is sort of trying to invite contact. He is stepping into it. If anything, he's the one who hits uh the mural. So it it shouldn't have been a penalty. And then you watch it again live and it's like, oh no, he's just trying to step across to screen the ball and Demiral barges into him. And I think there is something to be said to your point for if you see it live and you see exactly what's happening in the moment, sometimes I think that is a good indicator of what's happened. There are times when you're going to miss it or your angle is wrong. But I think when you break it down and watch like this half second as opposed to the full three seconds, which is still an insane distinction to have to make, it can be a little bit more confusing. It can feel a little bit more like I don't really know what I'm looking at anymore. It feels like the Zapruder film as opposed to a Champions League game. <laughs> Uh, Joe, I've got a couple of questions for you about Sevilla as well. Well, maybe a statement and a question. And Nasri, I thought, scored the perfect header and the perfect penalty. A very rare combo because there was absolutely nothing you could do about either. Both were absolutely textbook superb. But with De Jong coming on as a substitute, for me, I was wondering why he wouldn't be in this match earlier. Is there any reason you can give me for that? I think Sevilla's biggest difficulty was that they struggled to create chances in the middle of the attack and in zone 14 that area right in front of the middle of the box I think Sevilla had a lot of good things going in possession but they were kind of lacking that that number 10 quality in the middle and lacking a player who could bring those chances to the surface and actually allow them to penetrate in the middle of Dortmund's Dortmund's defensive shape I don't think Luke de Jong helps with that I think he he doesn't actually boost their ability to make things happen he boosts maybe their ability to convert chances, but that's not really addressing the problem. That's kind of just papering over the problem. I think if I'm Lopetegui, that's probably why De Jong doesn't come in sooner in this game. Is it a similar story with Papu Gomez? I, I, I think so. Papu Gomez can, comes in, if I'm not mistaken, after after Sevilla go down by two goals. Is that right? Do I have that timeline right? Yes, he, correct. He comes in along with De Jong. But Papu Gomez, I think, is that player who Lopetegui wants to create the chances, and he wants him to be the dominant ball player. But uh, Dorman's defensive block was too set. Sevilla still couldn't break through e- enough, at least, to win this game. But I think that was what Papu Gomez's role was intended to be. Fair enough. All right, gents, those were two very, very entertaining games we had on the Tuesday. Any more for any more on these ones before we move on to Wednesday's action? Taylor, anything from you? Um, we can kind of connect this to the Leipzig game, but like, I, I think Leipzig and Dortmund are so confusing to me because at times they both look very dominant and at times they look completely toothless. And like, I want to throw out a, an idea for you all to think about or completely reject if you want. Like, is there an idea that if you try to game plan for Dortmund, like specifically Dortmund here, that that almost is not the best idea. Like, I feel like it's better just to play your game and do what you do naturally and not try to counteract and negate things that Dortmund do. And to some extent, I feel like that makes them more like or like less likely to create chances. Or if you're building your entire defense around, don't let Erling Holland have the ball. When he gets the ball, I feel like it creates this nervousness. And I just I have a hard time understanding why Dortmund looks so good against a team that is completely set up to negate everything that they're offering, and yet against teams that are sort of doing what they would be doing normally or like smaller Bundesliga clubs, they tend to struggle and and be less effective. And I don't quite know why that's the case. Taylor, I think you just opened a can of worms that soccer coaches have trying to uh, been trying to answer and, and to put back in the can for a very long time regarding philosophy and how you should approach games. And I wish I had an answer for you, buddy. I really do. 
I mean, maybe it's just to uh, to press the lid down more tightly. Yeah, push harder. Maybe that's everybody. the solution. <laughs> if only we all had a minute or two to contemplate this. And now, some commercial messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. We are talking Champions League, more specifically the Wednesday evening games. It's Liverpool against Leipzig we're going to deal with first up. 2-0 on the night, just like it was in the first leg. This one taking place in Budapest, very much not Bucharest. Uh, maybe Liverpool need to play all their games, their home games in Budapest now, because, uh, you know, they got the job done here. Red Bull gives you wins, etc., etc. Taylor, is it just me, or was this very, very similar to the first leg in that I found them relatively indistinguishable in my mind. Uh, it is not just you. I, I really thought this was going to be, and maybe that's because I had expectations and hype around this one, but Nagelsmann being Nagelsmann, I thought we were going to get, if not a completely different approach, then a vi- much more aggressive, much more like, okay, we know what Liverpool have and don't have, and we can like uh, focus in on their vulnerabilities and overload this side or, or like create these like, uh, like one, two opportunities that we didn't have in the first leg. And I, and he changes some things certainly, but I didn't really see that. And if anything, I felt like Liverpool were almost never out of second year and yet still, won- still got a convincing win here. They had so many chances. I think they, they could have won this game 4-0, 5-0 potentially. And, and that completely blew my mind because I did, I watched this one from start to finish. Uh, in contrast to the Dortmund game where I switched at halftime to watch Juve, uh, Viporto because it felt like, okay, this one's done. That one's not here. I kept expecting Leipzig to change things and find a way back in. And they didn't. And I think that is certainly to some extent, maybe them not being up for it and getting some things wrong, but it's also definitely Liverpool having that fight, maybe Liverpool figuring some things out and maybe the, the narrative is correct that it is Liverpool just prioritizing, trying to win the champions league because that seems like, the most direct way they can qualify for next year's competition. Joe, is that damning of Rebel, uh, Rebel, Russian Bolsport Leipzig, of course, which they are known <laughs> They know as. what they are. <laughs> they know what they are indeed. But, uh, you know, they're, they're the second best team in the Bundesliga, you know, taking Bayern quite closely this season. And then they get completely outplayed by a Liverpool team who aren't at their best at the moment, um, who, as Taylor said, were pretty dominant. Lots of, lots of chances. They open RBL. They opened them right up here, didn't they? Is that is that a bit damning for Red Bull Leipzig? I've called them that again. Goodness me, sorry. It, it's okay. I think we're all we're all on the same page with that one. I it, it wasn't a good game for RB Leipzig. I don't know. Again, it's really hard. Maybe this is just a me thing, but it's really hard for me to to zoom all the way out and look at this game as a representation of Leipzig whole, Leipzig's whole season. But I do think this was not the best performance from Julian Nagelsmann's team. They were not able to break Liverpool down consistently enough to create the quality chances that they needed to win this game. That, for me, is the main Leipzig point from this match. 
they couldn't break through often enough to get the goals they needed to come back from that 2-0 deficit from the first leg. And that's what needed to happen. So yeah, this performance from Leipzig was not good enough for them. Uh, Julian Nagelsmann did make some changes. I thought they exploited certain areas of Liverpool's defensive shape better, particularly the, the vertical gap between the winger and the fullback for Liverpool in, in, their, in Liverpool's 4-3-3 press. There's that hole on each side of the field between Mane and Andy Robertson and between Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold. There's that gap, right? Leipzig did a better job of accessing that space. And they had a game plan. They were trying to switch the ball from right side over to the left side to take advantage of Liverpool defending narrowly. They had an approach, but kind of, Taylor, you were along this line already. It wasn't, it wasn't enough, right? The players didn't play well enough to, uh, Nongelsman maybe didn't address the things that he needed to, but I think ultimately this is just not the quality of performance from Leipzig that they needed to advance, but I don't know that that speaks to their entire season. Does this game affect I think it speaks um, to my, for, sorry, uh, Ryan, for me, it speaks to my sort of like my general, my broad understanding of Leipzig. Um, which is is potentially unfair, but in looking up like their uh, their historical record and their record of winning silverware, I, I was surprised. Record. What's that? Historical record of Leipzig was that? Yeah. <laughs> well, knowing okay. that they kind of start in the lower divisions with a different name, and then they change the name, and then they work their way up. Can you guess the last time they won something? Knowing that they had to work their way up. 2014. They won the Regional Liga Nordst in 2012-2013. They finished runners-up in the, in the three Liga, which is how they got promoted to the Zwei Bundesliga, where they were runners-up. And then they got their way into the Bundesliga, where they were runners-up in 2016, runners-up for the DFB Pokal. And I guess my point there is that this isn't a team that I think of as like, okay, they can win silverware. They can find a way to get it together, to go all the way, to win a cup, to go very, very deep and win the Champions League, to really push Bayern and eventually overtake them. Like in my mind, again, maybe a lazy narrative, but I'm, I'm trying to say that it, it, it feels like it's more than just, ah, eh, they just don't seem like they're putting it together. Bayern are dominant. It feels like until they, do that until they win a DFB Pokal or they do win the Bundesliga. I'm always going to have that little nagging suspicion of like, but can they get it over the line? Can they find a way through? And in this game, I thought maybe this was the opportunity to, as we saw with Mbappe and Holland, sort of cement their, like, we're the next team, we're the up-and-comers. And instead, a Liverpool team that still had some of the issues we've talked about with Liverpool. We do have some players moving back into midfield where they're more comfortable, like Fabinho, which allows maybe Thiago to have more freedom. But it was still a Liverpool team that are weaker than the Liverpool team that won the Champions League. They're certainly weaker than the Liverpool team that won the Premier League. But here, they didn't look that weak. And to me, that is a slight condemnation of RB Leipzig. Well, let's move on to Liverpool then. You mentioned Fabinho there, who seemed to be the biggest difference maker in this team, in my opinion. Having him back in midfield, very, very important. Having uh, two, you know, kind of natural centre-backs behind him with Quebec and Phillips. uh, That, you know, it, it seemed Fabinho was quite central to slowing Leipzig down, you know, breaking stuff up, doing doing defensive midfielder stuff, which they might have missed from from him. And I think that Thiago benefited from having Fabinho there as well, didn't he? So giving him that shield to to do Thiago things as well, Joe. I want to be I want to be clear. You guys do a great job on the weekend reviews. I love what you bring to the table, Ryan, you and, and Taylor and Graham. I am not team trash Thiago, by the way. I just want to make that clear as you know, as the three of us get a chance to talk, I am not affiliated with that weekend review crew in that way. I think Thiago is an excellent player. and I think he's been good for Liverpool 
in in a role that maybe isn't the same as as what he's used to doing for Bayern Munich or has been used to doing for Bayern Munich in the past. But anyway, that's a quick little aside I had to say to vindicate myself. Um, Ryan, at this point, I'm not going to lie to you. I've totally forgotten the question, so I'm just going to talk about Liverpool. Um, hopefully that's cool with you. Um, I'm going for You could it. just ask him to repeat the question, you know. Okay, yeah, Ryan, you want to repeat the question? No, I want you to go now. Okay. Obviously, get out of this hole. I think Liverpool's midfield, because I know that's what you were talking about before, you know, with Fabinho. I think their midfield was really good in this game. The way that Jurgen Klopp adjusted the personnel to have actual midfielders and actual center backs, which is not to say that he hasn't been doing that in the past. He just has had 80,000 injuries, so it's not really on him. But the personnel he puts out there executed the game plan really well. Fabinho, Wijnaldum, and Thiago congested that midfield. Diogo Jata dropped back at times. Kabak or Phillips moved forward into midfield at times to deal with all of the central players that Leipzig had, because they had a lot of guys in the middle. That's kind of their brand under Julian Nagelsmann. Liverpool dealt with that very well and made life difficult for Leipzig, and I think they deserve all the credit in the world for being really difficult to break down, really difficult to stop in possession, really difficult to stop in transition. Liverpool, on their best day, and I think yesterday was their best day as we're recording on Thursday, they're really, really hard to beat. But obviously, like, they have not been consistently hard to beat of late. They have uh, been dropping results. And I think, again, to, like, Joe, your your point about Pirlo, this is one of those games where if the scoreline goes the other way, it's it's another example of Klopp changing things up and trying a different combination and it not working. This time it does work. And, and I think I am sort of inclined to give him credit for this one as opposed to saying, like, oh, but it could have gone the wrong way because I think we see him – learning from what's not been working. I think he doesn't try Mohamed Salah central here. He puts him out uh, on the right wing. He puts Jota more central. I think like returning Fabinho to the midfield, but that allows uh, Wijnaldum as well to be in his more comfortable position. We've seen him central and that hasn't worked as well. So I do think there's a reality in which he does more of this sort of adjusting and it doesn't work. And it's more of the narrative of Klopp doesn't know what his best team is or how to get the best out of his players. But here, I think this is an example of him putting people in positions where they're more comfortable to do things that come more naturally. And we see them look pretty dominant from start to finish. I would say again, a little bit profligate in front of goal, but other than that uh, knock, I thought this was a pretty comprehensive victory for Liverpool. Well, up next for Liverpool, away days at Wolves and Arsenal, so they may be given a bit of confidence by this uh, this uh, victory. So we shall see about that. Last game we're going to cover, gents, last but not least, Paris Saint-Germain against Barcelona. This one finished uh, 1-1, Archbishop Desmond 1-1 on the evening. <laughs> you could have gone with the giant for Game of Thrones if you wanted to do that. 1-1, okay. the giant yeah. for Game of Thrones. Oh, Is time. this thing on? Anybody? Anybody? Next Next time. <laughs> yeah, we hear you. We, loud and clear. Uh, <laughs> this one um, had a, an early start for Barcelona with a PSG supporter reportedly getting into a hotel room in Barcelona's hotel, triggering the fire alarm at 5 a.m. Because uh, apparently, uh, I don't know, I suppose people from Barcelona do go to bed quite late. So that is middle of the night, perhaps, for them. Um, and th- that fan got arrested for his mischief. But, uh, y- you know, this one uh, finishing 5-2 to PSG on aggregate. PSG going through, of course. But for the run of play, it felt like Barcelona were certainly dominant for the most part in this fixture, Joe. They had the intensity. Perhaps it dropped off uh, in the second half and PSG got more into it in the second half. But Barcelona, at least in the first 45, looking pretty good here, Joe. Yeah, Barcelona had a giant hill to climb in this one, but they were very good for large stretches of this game, I thought. And I'm glad that you agree, Ryan. 
PSG didn't have the motivation necessarily to come out and and really go for it because they have that multi-goal lead headed into this game. And that was kind of predictable, right? That that would be the flow of the game. PSG don't need to run out and, and step forward and leave themselves exposed. So they can sit back a little deeper in a 4-5-1, and then Barcelona have to break them down. And I thought Barcelona, yeah, looked looked good, looked very capable of doing that. One of the things that I've really enjoyed from Barcelona all throughout this season, even as Ronald Koeman has struggled with different things and as the team has changed shapes and done done a lot of different things in La Liga, I think a constant thread has been how good Barcelona look with the ball. They rotate very well. They're very fluid. Messi comes and makes life really hard for the other team. They have a lot of quality possession play, and we saw that in this game. If a few balls roll differently off of Dembele's foot, maybe we have a different conversation. If that penalty goes in from Lionel Messi in the first half and Barcelona take, uh, you know, extend their lead, we have a different conversation as well. Barcelona looked good, and, and they're out of this competition, yes, but I think Ronald Koeman and the rest of that team should actually be fairly happy with how their results have been going recently. Yeah. Hard to argue with that with uh, the last few results. Um, Barcelona playing with a back three again here with uh, De Jong in the middle uh, as a central centre back. Taylor, you had thoughts on this uh, formation, a, th- a three four one two, ostensibly. Um, what did you make of that setup? Well, it's what we've seen from them like pretty consistently pretty recently. We also did see, I think Joe and I talked about this when we were talking about Serginho Des' performance this weekend. They did also shift to a back four and went back to that more conventional 4-3-3 uh, at some point, I think at halftime this past weekend. Yeah. So when they made some of the adjustments they made in game, I thought that's what they were going to do. Oh, they're going to a back four. I mean, Giza comes off. They're kind of doing what's more familiar and they didn't really. They stuck with that back that that back three slash back five. I thought it, it did work pretty well for them. I thought for uh, for an American perspective, Serginho Dest was more involved in the attack. I think we saw him and Jordi Alba very high up the field very consistently, and that's not a thing we saw at the weekend. That feels like a thing they've worked on and tried to balance a bit more in their attack. I think having Messi, it reminded me a lot of what Atalanta do or what they did with Papu Gomez, where they're in that back three. Then there's the kind of two midfielders that are, their job is to stay central and make sure everything stays orderly. And then you've got Lionel Messi kind of free to do whatever he wants with Dembele and Griezmann ahead of them. I I think it, it puts a lot of people in a lot of positions to shine and do what comes naturally to them. And I think that is a big part of how you have success is putting players in areas where they know exactly what to do by instinct and because they've done it a thousand times as opposed to having to figure it out on the fly. So I think he made some smart choices. I think so too did Pochettino. And I think that's what this ends up being to me. I I really, I will own in in the way that Joe uh, defends Thiago. I think Mauricio Pochettino is a very good manager and I think people knock him for any number of reasons. But to some extent, I think that both of these games, our takeaway was they were sort of boring, is a testament to how good of a manager Jurgen Klopp is and how good of a manager Pochettino is. Because a different PSG manager with this lead overthinks it maybe or tries to do too much or tries to roll the dice too much. And I think that he just goes with a 4-3-3 slash 4-5-1. Everybody drop in. And then when we have the opportunity, we'll attack. We'll take that penalty. And then we'll kind of not try to do too much, not overextend ourselves. I think that's a big part of why Barcelona's approach doesn't work as well as they would have hoped. Yeah, Pep would have overthought it, made nine changes and changed his 4-3-3 completely. This is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, you probably well, I right did think I did think, and, and to uh, like... Like to go back to the lineup itself, I was sort of confused because when it was listed, I think most outlets had them in that 4-3-3 because Frankie de Jong is in there. We don't have Jared Piquet. And then when Frankie de Jong is sitting in as that center center back, 
Uh, that seemed to confuse the commentators. It certainly confused me because I thought if anybody was going to drop in and be a center back, it would be Busquets. That way you don't have his sort of aging legs having to cover a lot of ground. You put Frankie de Jong in a position to do that where he's a bit more lively. I think he's also okay with being that sort of more holding defensive midfielder if the situation requires. And so that they went this way and obviously they don't end up getting a resounding win. And we're not talking about how Ronald Koeman is a genius, but it still was surprising. And then surprising to me that it didn't implode. I'm wondering if either of you have, have thoughts on why he went with the young in the back as opposed to Busquets. Joe, I think in this game, the most important ground, if you think about in a lot of games, the most important ground to be covered by a defensive team is typically in front of the back line. You don't want to get exposed in that little area in front of the center backs then you can turn and, and run at them and make things happen from there. In this game and for PSG, the way that PSG approached this match with Mbappe on the left side, isolated, running in behind Mingiza over and over again, and then it's Firpo later on in the first half. The most important ground is not in front of the center center back or, or in front of the center backs in whatever shape back line you're using. The most important ground is in behind on Barcelona's right side, PSG's left side, because that's where Mbappe is going every single time. Sergio Busquets can't slide over to help the right center back cover that ground. But Frankie de Jong can. Frankie de Jong has the speed to slide over and help. Uh, Sergio okay. Busquets, I think, would be pretty useless defensively. Well, he kind of already is. But he'd be more useless <laughs> defensively in the middle in, in the middle of a back three because he can't give Mingiza or Furpo any help. He's not able to slide over and make that happen. So I think yeah. de Jong, in his athleticism, is pretty much the sole defensive reason as to why he's in that spot. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. And 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 I think with that in mind, then, it says to me that he's maybe not the most popular manager, but like Ronald Koeman, I think, has some smart ideas with this team about how to do some things maybe a little bit differently than they've done in the past. Even that substitution with Firpo coming in, I was very, like, again, I thought it was going to be a formation change or it meant they were going to do something structurally different. I don't think it really did. I think Mengiza was on the yellow. He was concerned about that. But I also... Going back to the Copa del Rey comeback when they're they're down, what, 2-0, I think after the first leg, they end up winning 3-0 in extra time. Uh, he makes this same change. Mengiza comes out in the 78th minute, on comes Junior Firpo, and it gives them more stability to deal with those counterattacks, and it gives them more attacking threat as well. And they end up uh, getting a goal in regulation that sends it to overtime, and then they end up getting the winner there. So I do think that he learned from past experience and tried to sort of roll the dice again. It doesn't end up working, but it also doesn't blow up in his face. And there's another reality. We keep going to the multiverse, or at least I do, where they lose this one 4-0. And then it's a complete devastating blow and Barcelona are in complete free fall and they have an election and their old president has been indicted, allegedly, I think. Uh, so I love that nobody knows entirely with confidence how to talk about that without potentially opening themselves up to a lawsuit. But I, I thought this was as as good of a result as like we could have realistically expected from this Barcelona team against this PSG squad. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I was interested in that Mingueza Firpo swap as well, because I thought it would give uh, Busquets more license to drop back and make that part of the back four and give Dest more license to, to, to move up. Yeah. Sure, I think we saw that to a certain extent, but uh, I think Joe's point about the mobility is is excellent as well. And I mentioned that fire alarm waking up the uh, Barcelona team. It. And I think I'm not convinced that uh, Griezmann and Dembele ever woke up from that, <laughs> fire, from that fire alarm going up, because uh, as we mentioned, Dembele... It could have made this a very different story with some different shooting. I thought Griezmann had a pretty poor evening as well. So I was curious to, of, of you, guys, what you guys thought about having you know Griezmann in that sort of tennis role behind 
Dembele and Messi here. Messi? Messi here. Messi. Messi. And I do that every time. Whenever I follow it with Dembele. Dembele, Dembele and Messi. Yeah. And I also make it Forrest Gump. Jenna, apparently, for some reason. Uh, I, since, since Joe is the, uh, clearly the astute when it, when it comes to Barcelona tactics, I will just say, I love the 5 a.m. Uh, uh, firework alarm wake up because my usual wake up time these days being 7 a.m., uh, like 5 a.m. is the perfectly annoying time to be wide awake because it's like I've got two hours until I need to be awake. I could be sleeping two hours longer, but now I'm awake and it's going to be hard for me to get back to sleep. And even if I do, it's like an hour and a half. Am I even going to get REM sleep at that point? I think it's I think it's well timed. At like two a.m., you can go right back to sleep and sleep until seven, and you're getting you know a good five hour chunk there. So I think that was brilliant tactical precision from the uh, fireworks that are offer. I disagree. 4 a.m. has got to be the sweet spot because that's, you know, you've just about can't get back to sleep at 4 a.m. and you could viably stay awake at that point. And it's the, the right. That is the peak annoying point for me. You know what? I, I, I'm going to I'm going to concede. I think you're right, because 4 a.m. in my ex- experience <laughs> is that time when you're like, well, I could like I'll like watch a quick show and that will kind of tire me out and then I'll go back to sleep and I'll get that sleep. And then suddenly it's an hour and a half later and I've been scrolling Reddit and now I've wasted the entire morning. And maybe that is what Griezmann and Dembele did. And that's why they look so sluggish. Joe, your thoughts. I'm going back to sleep at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. or 530, <laughs> even 6 or 630 if my alarm set at 7 a.m. Um that is that is absolutely my course of action 11 times out of 10. Dembele, oh man. Are you doing it easily though? Do you just fall right back asleep? Because if so, it depends on how the tired middle I fingers am. that I've been throwing Ryan's way are now going your way. <laughs> totally depends on how tired I am. And, and right. I'd like to say I can get back to sleep most often, but there are times where it, it, it does take a little bit more effort. With, uh-huh. with Barcelona in this game to move us back on track here. Usmane <laughs> Dembele, he, had, he was so close to having an incredible game, right? He got into a lot of good positions inside the box. He ran in behind more than any other player for Barcelona, making life really difficult for Kimpembe and Marquinhos. He drew some really good saves from Keylor Navas, but he was missing just that last little piece of the puzzle. And that's soccer. That is how the game works. That's why expected goals is a thing, because scoring goals is really, really hard. And when you hear a commentator say he should have scored that, no, that's not that's yeah. not how it works. Otherwise, everyone would play soccer and we would all be multimillionaires. That is just not the reality. And man, wow, reality is a buzzword on today's show. That's on me. I I do think Dembele was largely good At least in this game. You're grounded in reality. I'm sending us to the multiverse. <laughs> so I appreciate you keeping us on this planet. <laughs> we did start on Quidditch, so we did, we went from there. Didn't we? <laughs> we we never had a chance today, did we, fellas? We never had a chance. Dembele did a lot well, and and he struggled with that final action that final execution and that that's going to happen sometimes so i i honestly personally don't fault him too much for that Griezmann, i don't think has ever fit barcelona that that move at the time from getting him in from atletico madrid was always a little strange because he's kind of a man without a position but barcelona aren't set up they're not set up to allow for a man without a position they're not set up to allow for thomas muller they're set up to allow for real structure and then Lionel messi moving wherever he wants and you can't really have too many people that want to go where they want in one team. It just it, it doesn't work out. Or if it does, it's very, very difficult to make work. So those 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 two players do cause some challenges for Barcelona at times. But yeah, and they played a good game. PSG had a very straightforward game plan. Get the ball to Mbappe in behind the line and let him go to work. They got the penalty. They scored the penalty. And at that point, it was going to be nearly impossible for Barcelona to come back in this game. And they couldn't. And, and that's okay. That's the way life works sometimes. Joe, can I can I throw out an idea and I want to hear what you think of it? Please. All right. 
If you are uh, Joan Laporte, who's just taken over the new Barcelona president, obviously your priority is to keep Messi and make Messi happy. My feeling is that we have seen Antoine Griezmann at his best when he's in a front two, and he's in a front two with somebody who can knock it down and play him in and be the physical hold-up presence that allows him to move around. I don't think Dembele does that as well. I think I see the idea of you've got these two lightning-fast attackers who can combine, and it's a series of one-twos down the field. I don't think it works that well. So let's say they did want to keep Griezmann. That was their priority is they've invested so much money in him. Let's stick with him. But Dembele is is the potential make weight if they have to. We know they're okay with a swap deal because Pjanic and Artur, that's how that happens. If you're Borussia Dortmund, do you take Dembele and let's say like Ricky Puj, who we don't think Ronald Koeman is a big fan of or doesn't seem to get the minutes that we would expect. Do you take that for Erling Holland? Because oh. I feel like that makes Barcelona better to have Holland and Griezmann combining up top. It gets rid of Dembele, who can be a little bit wasteful, but I think is a very good asset if you find a way to make him work. And then maybe you throw in another player so you don't have to spend that much money. Who says no in that deal? I think Dorman says no, because I think they need another $100 million on top of Dembele and, and Pooch to make that deal. That's probably true. <laughs> but this is the issue with Griezmann, right? Because you're talking about Holland. As you were talking, I was trying to think of that, that classic knock-it-down number nine that can just lay the ball off to Griezmann. Holland's really not that player. He's more of a, I'm going to get him behind that's and you're going to feed me. That's why, yeah. that's why working with Griezmann is so challenging because it takes a very specific type of player. I think I agree with you, Taylor, to get the best out of him. It's really Diego Costa and, and players who fit that mold, but that doesn't really fit Barcelona. That's never fit Barcelona since the Cruyff era many, many years ago at this point. So I don't know how you make the pieces work. And then even if you do get that hold up number nine, then you've got Messi where he's not going to defend. So you can't play an Atletico Madrid style defensive block and then attack and be free flowing. There are so Messi's many in issues here. In this analogy, I think. True. He's in New York City, actually, <laughs> if I get my way as president. But it, it is it is a very challenging situation with the personnel that Barcelona have. And I, I don't know if that trade would work, but I, I'm here for it, to be clear. It would be entertaining. I think it would it would take a lot for Borussia Dortmund to take Osman Dembele back as well. <laughs> the guy they sold for hundred million and has done what he's done. Bring Emery Moore and Christian Pulisic back and you've got the whole gang back together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that maybe that's it, is you have uh Pulisic go to Dortmund and then you have Giroud go yeah. to uh Barcelona and we put Giroud and Griezmann together and then they win the World Cup. There we go. We solved it. Solved. Yep. TSS game putting the world to rights once again. All right, gents. I think that just about wraps up our Champions League review for today. Taylor, despite the middle fingers you throw me throughout these video calls, it's a pleasure talking to you once again, darling. I'm giving you a thumbs up now, Ryan. Right back at you, buddy. Yay, different hand signals, Joe. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time once again. Excellent stuff. You got it, Ryan. Thank you. Bye for now, listener. 